Ephesians chapter 4.
is strong for each member, and each member adds strength to the community. Um, as a result of this, uh, here in chapter 4, he talks about them maturing. He tells them to grow up. Um, he doesn't exactly tell them to grow up. He talks about them growing up in, into Christ. And the only thing that stood in the way of this was their old self. And the old self constantly asserts itself because it is, it is so much the habit of our lives. It's so much of what's been programmed into us. When I talk about automatic, automatic pilot, I was thinking the other day of, you know, uh, if you don't know, you should know, jetliners are oftentimes flown on automatic pilot. Uh, going across the Atlantic, uh, the pilot and co-pilot can relax, they can have a cup of tea, they can walk around, they can use the restroom, and the jet flies itself because someone has programmed it to do that. Um, more recently, you know, there's been a few problems in the programming, hasn't there? Uh, especially when uh, certain planes are coming in for a landing and they're finding now that the computer system, um, the, the program is uh, detrimental, can be detrimental to whether the plane lands safely or not. So, you know, here's the problem, is that you, you can relax because you know, the plane's on autopilot. If there's an alarm that sounds, well, then you're gonna pay attention, but otherwise you don't have to. And most of us are going through life on autopilot. We don't realize it, but there's a lot that we don't bring attention to, we, we don't think about, we don't focus on, that we probably should. Um, especially if you wanna get rid of the old self and put on the new self. Their old self had been shaped by their history, um, their former manner of life, Paul says. That's what you have to give up. And he says, that was corrupted. When we talk about a, a computer file that's been corrupted, it means that there's something, uh, some defect in it, uh, so it's a damaged file, and it's unable to properly run the program. And he's, he says, you're, you're not running. The old self doesn't run uh, according to the programs of God's intention and will. The file is corrupted. So we've got to get rid of the old file. got to purge the system. got to get the, the new programming uh, going on in this. Last week, uh, we, we saw how education and experience etches pathways in the brain, and that once those pathways are established, the brain always takes um, the path of least resistance. In other words, it's created this configuration of neural connections, and so it naturally goes back to them when given the right uh, input. Uh, and as a result, the brain is writing its own owner's manual, uh, and then functioning according to that owner's manual. And that owner's manual sinks into our unconscious. You know, we, we, I don't think any of us remember when we first learned to walk, but if you have ever had a child and watched your baby learning how to walk, there's a lot to it. There's a lot that's going on 
in the, in the brain and the neurology of limbs and uh, you know the, the uh, vestibular co cochlear nerve learning balance um, and they experiment and they lift one foot and then they're off balance so there's a lot to it we don't even think about it today unless you know there's a problem and then we're forced to walk carefully to limp for a while to use a crutch or a cane but otherwise it's automatic pilot for us we're just going per the the owner's manual that's been written into us but that sinks down into our unconscious and becomes our belief system. It becomes our blueprint, blueprint for reality. If we don't question it, um, we don't even make assumptions about it. It's just what is real to us. And if bad information has been programmed into us, then what's real to us is skewed. And basically, this, this is the problem of the old self. Okay, so we have to put on the new self. We have we have to have this new owner's manual written, um, and the new self isn't something that's been programmed into us, but it's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the programming that works. This is what we have to have. And today we're going to take another step in that direction. You and I are going to change. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. <coughs> Have you ever seen a satellite photo of the United States at nighttime, maybe, or flown across the United States at night? Um, you have lots of lights on the East Coast and the West Coast, big dark spots in the middle. In fact, it's kind of interesting if, if you're flying at 30,000 feet over uh, Las Vegas. It's dark, dark, dark desert. Oh, all of a sudden, all this brightness, all these lights. Um, these, these points of light that dot various places in the U.S. with a view like that, imagine that the brain looks something like that, only it's in three dimensions. Some of those lights are closer, some are further away. And, and here and there, activity lights up brain cells. And these cells are going to cluster. These lights are all connected to each other. So they all, they're all sharing the same message, the same task. They're all working on the same thing. Um, and that may be a thought that we have. Uh, it may be a question we've been asked. Uh, but these things are lighting up, and that's, that's going on in the brain for as long as we live. Neural wiring is not just what goes on in our brain, but it runs through the whole body. The brain communicates with the whole body. So a sudden panic, uh, a loud explosion nearby, uh, suddenly you, you jump, you don't know what's going on. Well, um, it gets imprinted on the nervous system. It, it has an immediate effect. <clears throat> heart rate increases, respiration may decrease or increase depending on. You, you may freeze and just hold your breath for a moment, or you may begin to breathe rapidly and hyperventilate. Um, your digestive tract shuts down. Uh, the body says, sorry, we need that blood pooled elsewhere, ready to go into muscles if you need to run. 
uh, all the glands are activated to release <coughs> hormones into the bloodstream, uh, give you give your uh, reflexes uh, an edge, a little extra quickness, and uh, and your muscles, everything is everything's activated. <coughs> now the body doesn't need honey to activate every part of it like that. Now, every emotion, most every thought, affects the whole body. That's why when we read the scriptures, especially the Psalms and the Proverbs, uh, the poets and the wise people can talk about um, how uh, their lips will proclaim God's glory. That, that, that God wants truth in the, in the innards, the inward parts. That uh, not only the heart, but the kidneys <clears throat> uh, have feelings. Um, some of this we retain in expressions like, you know, it, it was just a gut feeling. Uh, and we, we know what that means. We don't have to describe it. <clears throat> but it might be hard to define exactly what we're talking about. The body has its own wisdom. It has <clears throat> its own experiences of life. And it's, it's running constantly. Uh, okay, so again, our habits, our history that's been written into our nervous system. Habits are simply history that's been written into the nervous system. And if an impact, or pardon me, if an event is repeated, or if the impact of an event is strong enough, such as a traumatic experience. <clears throat> it is written into the neurons that affect our emotions. And the, the biological response our body has to those emotions, which is typically uh, uh, glandular and what's basically all of our organs. The memory of that event, now that it's been imprinted on our nervous system, the memory of it reproduces the event. When you remember the event, the parts of your mind, parts of your brain, that were activated by the original event are activated again. And the same chemicals that were released that original event are released again. Maybe not to the same volume, maybe so, maybe even greater, depending. We know that doing the same thing always produces the same results. Thinking the same thoughts always reproduces the same conclusions. And this is one way that we are controlled by our past. Is that we have these habitual thoughts, these habitual feelings, these habitual responses, these habitual reflexes. Tap the knee with a rubber mallet and you kick the doctor. Um, that's the way our whole lives have been programmed. 90% of our lives 
we are asleep. We're asleep because the computer's running, it's flying the plane, we don't have to worry about it. I want to tell you something um, about something that I don't want to tell you about. <laughs> I'd rather have a, a different illustration, but this is a real one. And it helps to illustrate how God did, did some rewriting in my own <coughs> manual. Right? So, a few years ago, I needed help with a very important, it's very important to me. Uh, it, it carried a lot of emotional weight to me. And I confided in someone who I considered a close friend. And I laid everything out to him. About a year later, he leaked what I had told him in confidence. And it was, it was actually worse than him breaking trust with me. I mean, that was my story. It wasn't his story. He did not have a right to tell that story. Do you know what I mean? And he knew the, the situation which I confided in. But it was worse than him breaking confidence with me. Um, he used it against me to manipulate me. He was convinced I needed to take a certain course of action, and he was forcing my hand to take that course of action. Um, now, in his mind, he was acting in my best interest. But for me, it was shocking and a painful wound. At first, I tried to blow it off and remain friends with him. Because, you know, I thought friendship's bigger than that, and this is what I should do. But each time I saw him, it reminded me of what he did. And he, he never talked about it. He never said, oh, by the way, sorry. Um, in fact, it got to be where even when I heard his name, and because we had the same network of friends, I heard it frequently enough, and I heard his name, I'd nod up inside. This was the habit of my neurons, right? This was this was triggered frequently when I would pray the Lord's Prayer. Come to the part, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who, what the heck? <laughs> I would pray those words and his name, his name would pop into my head. And I felt like God was like, you know, drumming his fingers on his desk. So-and-so, forgive us our trespasses as we forget so-and-so. I would try to forgive again. Every time I pray the Lord's Prayer, I say, okay, I'm going to forget. I'm going to let it go. And I feel relieved. I feel like okay, I'm doing the right thing. But then his name would pop up, and I'd be in turmoil. My body would immediately switch into this turmoil mode. I sometimes imagined confronting him and, and trying to clear everything up. I wanted him to understand. I wanted him to recognize what he had done. And I wanted an apology. 
I felt we could be reconciled if I had an apology. But I knew that would never happen because he was way too much of a narcissist. Now, I'm not just saying this not everybody knows it, knows he's a narcissist. Um, he's proud of it. So, uh, so I knew he, he could never tell me that he had done anything wrong. He could never apologize for something. I didn't do anything wrong. You were better off as a result of my intervention. <coughs> Interference, from my perspective. Intervention. But I gave up. I mean, I, I think of scenarios where I'm confronting him and then just realizing, you know, it works in my imagination. It would never work in real life. You never hear it the way I feel it. So how did I get that stuck? When I first discovered what he had, what he had done, a flood of strong emotions came over me, and my entire nervous system was activated. You know, you grieve, you get angry, <clears throat> you get activated. Thousands of neurons, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe a million neurons in my brain lit up and connected with each other and said, wow, what a creep. They're all you know, sharing the same, how could you? Uh, all these neurons going through this. And neurochemicals in my brain registered my feelings, my emotions, and the release of hormones into my bloodstream hit me in the gut, tensed my muscles, my neck, my shoulders. left a very bad feeling in me. The intensity of that first experience <coughs> created an instant memory, reinforced by all the power of the emotion. And that's something you have to realize, that a thought or an event that's accompanied by strong emotion becomes long-term memory much more easily than a random thought or a random event. If strong emotion accompanies it, then you have another factor contributing to the memory of it. And a year after the event, five years after the event, eight years after the event, whenever I remember the same neural pathway was activated, the same chemistry was released, I felt the same pain and the same revulsion. It was as if the offense was being committed that minute. It was like right then he was telling something to someone that I had confided in him. It was happening in the here and now of my physiological, neurological experience. Do you understand that? Yeah. Yeah. It's like it just comes right back. I'm not trying to feel these things. It's programmed, it's, a, it's the old self-owner's manual that has this written into it. How can I forgive him if at this very moment he's doing this to me? Do you understand? 
I'm in this emotional state. I mean, it was 10 years ago, whatever. I'm in this emotional state right now. It's happening right now. How can I forget in this emotional state? I can't. I, I'm forgiving someone of something they're doing right now. How can they apologize for that? Or they're, they're thinking about doing it. I mean, it's, the time element gets all messed up because my body is not just remembering, it is re-experiencing, reliving, reproducing that moment. I was imprisoned in my past. When we get stuck in the past, we do not just remember it. The brain reproduces it, and we relive it. And that's why resentment anchors itself so easily into our, our bodies. Because what is resentment? It is memory of what that person did and all the experiences that that memory reproduces. <clears throat> so we re-experience the injury and then we relish our revenge fantasies. <laughs> you know, drawn and tortured comes to mind. You know, endless pain comes to mind. Um, very, very, very bad luck. Chronic bad luck for the rest of their mind. Good life comes to mind. Um, or we enjoy punishing the offender. I never hear from you anymore. Good. <laughs> you know, it's much worse when they never hear from us and they don't even know it. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I'm trying to punish them here. <laughs> We are the ones replaying the event. What that person did to us, they did once. We've done it to ourselves since then a thousand times. What does that get me? Each recorded event like this has a trigger. We don't even know what that trigger is sometimes. I knew when someone said his name I was triggered. But there are other times I wasn't thinking about it, wasn't even praying the Lord's Prayer. Got triggered. Even just sitting in quietness, minding my own business and relaxing. Joseph Dispenza said, all it takes is one stray thought or one reaction to some event in the external world. When I was working in um, recovery, substance abuse and alcoholism, I encourage people to know their triggers. And there's this one woman, uh, she was in a Christian track of a local uh, rehab clinic, and uh, she said, this is my fifth time in rehab. She said, I don't know, you know why I'm like this, I, and I keep coming back. I want this to be the last time. And I said, well, tell us about it. You know, what happened this time? And she said, you know, it's strange. I was doing really good. And then I started drinking. And I said, you're doing good? And that started your drinking? Yeah. She said, yeah. And I said, what, were you afraid, waiting for the other shoe to drop? 
She said, yeah. And he thought, I was thinking, oh, I'm doing good. Oh, this is too good. This can't last. I better have a drink. Just that, that little bit of fear, that little bit of, of, of anxiety triggered how her body had been written. Oh, when I feel overwhelmed, I've got to have a drink. When I feel like I'm going over the edge, I've got to have a drink. When I can't handle what's coming at me, I've got to have a drink. She, that was her trigger. All right, so knowing the trigger is really crucial, but we actually haven't come to that part yet. How come we're so unaware of the brain's owner manual that we can just sleepwalk through life? Well, as we've seen, habits tend to slip from awareness. The more habituated, the less attentive we are to these things, the less attention they draw. We just do it, we don't have to think about it. But there's another reason, and it has to do with the three regions of the brain, and that's why the illustration uh, this morning that was left on your seat, and you don't have to look at it, but um, the, the first region is the brain stem. It's at the base of the skull, and it connects with the spinal cord. All right? Um, it's a communication center for the brain and the body. You know, messages that pass from the brain into the body go through the, the brainstem. It, it consists of the midbrain, the pons, and the medulla. The medulla is very interesting because the vagus nerve uh, proceeds from three different nucleuses, nuclei in the medulla, uh, going upward as well as downward. This nerve, the vagus nerve, innervates the heart and the lungs uh, in distress is actually more, much more than it does in the sympathetic system. That's the fight or flight mode. You've heard of the fight or flight mode. That's, that's the sympathetic part of the autonomic nervous system. Oh, um, so um, it innervates the heart and the lungs. Actually, it affects all the organs. The sympathetic system does much more to the body than the parasympathetic. Um, it also um, goes into the throat, into the, it, it innervates the whole enteric system, your, your uh, eating and digesting, uh, also the larynx and the pharynx. So um, vocalization is affected by the vagus nerve. And so when I was in the fourth grade trying out for elementary school glee club, and they said, sing these notes, la, 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 I said, ooh, ooh, ooh. And it's just my vagus nerve. It wasn't me. I really could sing. <laughs> but they, they, they looked at me and said, have you tried kickball? <laughs> so I tried kickball. Um, and I choked there, too. Uh, okay, so the brain stem, and then the second is the limbic system, and that's the very interior of the brain, and uh, I won't talk about that, just one important little structure in there called the amygdala, and that's because the amygdala produces a lot of fear, and it, it may be a very specific fear related to information that's come to it, or it may just be a generalized uh, new fear. Um, 
It's the headquarters, the, the limbic system is the headquarters for emotions, including nurturing, empathy, the emotions that bind people together, that create attachments. And it also interprets what we experience and hear and feel. Um, it, it makes judgments. That's good, that's bad. And it goes after the good and it avoids the bad. The third is the cortex. That's the outer layer of the brain. And in the front part of the brain, the, the prefrontal cortex, um, <coughs> that is the corner suite of the executive office. Okay, a lot of thinking goes on up there. They don't do much. All they're doing is down here on the first floor with the brain stem. Um, and then the limbic system, it gets all emotional and worked up about things. But executive branch is like, everybody calm down, we've got to think this through. Um, that's a tree from cortex. And um, it's the rational part of the brain. All of our reasoning, our analyzing, our planning, forming judgments about things. This isn't like judging good and bad. This is, you know, forming uh, more sophisticated judgments about things. All that happens there. It's also the part of the brain that's capable of being self-conscious. I'm sitting here listening to Chuck in this very warm room, and I am aware of the fact, that, and I can see myself sitting here listening to Chuck and, and feel the warmth of the room. Um, we can bring this kind of attention and thoughts. Very much we don't usually. We just think our thoughts. We just feel our feelings. You can take a step back, <coughs> observe your thoughts, observe your feelings, observe yourself. And I'm getting close to, to what we're going to be talking about. In, in, in a crisis, the brainstem can take immediate control of the body. It can turn on the sympathetic nervous system without even asking the prefrontal cortex for permission. It doesn't first say, we've got a problem down here. It looks like uh, our room's on fire. Uh, should we run? Should we get water? Should we throw a blanket on it? What should we do? It doesn't bother with that. It just lunges out the window. Uh, and then the, the, the prefrontal cortex says, why should you do that? The room is on the fire. It, how, it can happen so fast that the body is in motion before we think a rational thought about it. Before we even know why we're running. Okay? Um, in fact, in some cases, what happens to us is so horrendous that the prefrontal cortex goes offline. If you're watching a Simpsons movie, what happens is you're looking at Homer and you suddenly see his brain inside this, his head and then it floats away. And then he just talks out of his stupidity, out of his emotions or whatever, out of his appetites. Uh, but the brain's like, I'm out of here. Uh, well, what happens if, if what's going on doesn't get to the prefrontal cortex? It's never reported as a conscious memory. The nervous system remembers, but the nervous system has no story for it to make sense of it. And so that Vietnam, that, that, that 
vet from Iraq or Afghanistan. There's a loud boom, someone likes a cherry bomb, and they hit the deck, or they run, or they start punching, because their prefrontal cortex never recorded this. They don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. Their body is reacting, which in one situation was adaptive and saved their lives. <coughs> But when they blow up at their family, it becomes maladaptive. Where it was appropriate, outside that event, it's inappropriate. And if it were recorded as a memory, they would know better. They would have more control. You don't have to experience trauma to also have these kinds of imprints on your nervous system. Brain stem can be activated, emergency response, either by external stimuli or internal stimuli. Just a thought to get things going. All right. I, I think now we, we've looked long enough at the challenges of writing a new owner's manual. I think we need to just get to work on it, but not today. Do <laughs> <laughs> one today. But I can't leave you just hanging. Um, because uh, you're carrying resentments, you want to get rid of them now, right? Uh, next week we'll begin looking at the changes we can make. Uh, but I, I just want to give you a little help right now. First of all, we cannot rewrite our owner's manual if we don't know what our owner's manual says. And since it's all automatic, all unconscious, it's going to take some work. We need to start bringing attention. I, I gave you a little bit of a homework assignment last week, and the purpose was to get you to start paying attention to your habits. It's, you know, simple habits, opening a, a can, um, feeding the cat, uh, brushing your teeth, whatever, pay attention to your habits so that you're bringing some of that unconscious stuff up to consciousness. Be aware. Be aware. And then, if in your mind, and hopefully only in your mind, in your mind you're cussing out another driver, bring awareness to that. And not just to that, but to yourself, where did that come from? Why did that come out of me? It's not who I am, it's who I was, it's not my, how did that come out of me? And just bring awareness to it. Don't, you don't have to try to answer that question, but if you ask it, your brain will be working on it. You know when you're trying to remember a name, you can't remember it, and then five hours later it just pops up, it's like you're, your brain has been going through all of its file cabinets and finally comes to the name and says, oh, this, and you know, thanks, I could have used that five hours ago. But the point is that we can get our brain working on certain tasks and it will work for us behind the back. So get it working on bringing to conscious level. All right. When I first began this for myself, I identified one of my characteristic negative thoughts 
or, or, or negativity, so let's just say that. And it was the biggest one that I wanted to get rid of. And, and I wrote it out to simple, overwhelming oppression. I wake up with it almost every morning. I wake up overwhelmingly oppressed. Like, why am I alive? What good am I? You know, whatever, overwhelming oppression. And bringing it up to the surface, then I see what's been written into my owner's manual. And I know now what needs to be changed. That's a start. And I want you to find for yourself, what is it that stands out for you? You want to see change. And then, God has given us a different clock to run our lives by. The, the clock we use now can trap us in the past. Does my owner's manual have trapped me? Uh, or it can also get us stuck in the future, too. This prefrontal cortex can be quite imaginative, inventive, and creative, and anticipate a horrible future event. What if? Now I'm all worried about it. Now there's anxieties. And these anxieties also have a neurochemical correlate in my brain and body. So the anxiety is triggered, the whole body is triggered, and I'm wringing my hands and pacing, or I'm tensing muscles I don't know about it, I've got my jaw clenched, I don't know about it, except that the next morning it's all sore. The problem is when the prefrontal cortex comes up with these end-of-the-world scenarios, the rest of the brain does not know it's imaginary. If you dwell on it long enough, if you think about it hard enough, the conspiracy theories feed this, feed the fears of the future. And if you, if you dwell on that long enough, the, brain, the rest of your brain, the limbic system, your brain system, it doesn't know, it's just, you're just imagining it. You almost need to tell them, look guys, I'm just blue skying right now. I'm just brainstorming here, just thinking about whatever. Don't take me seriously. But that doesn't really help. Um, and so the limbic system produces worry, and the brainstem activates the body. With God's clock, our lives run according to eternity. And the eternal perspective changes the now perspective, the, the momentary perspective. Have you ever gone down to the beach with a problem on your heart and just sitting there looking at the vast expanse of the ocean, the problem goes away? The ocean is so big. And this problem is so minuscule, it just like floats away, like flotsam and jetsam. But same can happen when you think about eternity, when we move that direction. Um, we've talked before about chronos time, chronological time. Moves horizontally like this from birth to death. And, you know, we're looking at our clock, uh, our watch, following the day timer, what's on schedule for calendar on calendar today, and we're all caught up in this. But God's time in the New Testament is kairos time. It's it's the moment, it's the chosen moment when God breaks into our life. So we have this vertical line 
intersecting this horizontal line of our life. So here we are, we're going, going, going. When does Kairos time intersect chronological time? Whenever you need, need it. Whenever God chooses. Any moment, every moment can be potentially eternity breaking into time. And just a moment of being in eternity, the eternal now. Just a moment of that. You can come back into Kronos time and be relieved of the burdens you've carried. See things with new eyes, a larger perspective, a more spacious uh, uh, list of possibilities. It occurs now. So, Second Corinthians four sixteen through eighteen, that you know, these light, uh, uh, temporary afflictions are nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that, that waits for us. Um, for the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And Paul says that's the clock we run by now. In Second Corinthians chapter six verse two, he says. You know, there's a scripture that says, um, you know, the day of salvation. And Paul says, when is that day? He says, behold, now is the day of salvation. Now. So the more time we can spend with God in now moments, the more we're going to be able to get, get over whatever our body is trying to make happen. And it, there's a there's a curve of urgency. I gotta have a smoke. I've gotta have a smoke. I've gotta have a smoke. <laughs> Breathe. Eternal now. Oh, I don't really need a smoke. Oh, I'm gonna find without a smoke. I can go without a smoke. Right? The urgency builds, builds, builds. That's usually when we give in. It peaks. You know, somewhere close to that. If you slow down your breath. Bring attention to it. I'm not saying everyone here you know, can give up smoking or that it's easy to overcome addictions, but I am saying that for most of the worries and, and, and the, the issues that come up where we find ourselves knotted up or tense or uh, anxious, breathe through it, come back to now with God, be in this moment, this blessed moment, and then go on with your life. A moment, a moment of the presence of eternity enables us to live today without freedom, and probably without worry, perfect freedom. Would you stand, please? Bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.